0: Now, all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody, and
1: welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Today, we have a frequent guest on our program with us, John Hood, and uh, we are doing the program Socially Correct uh, with social distancing. John is in his office. I'm in my conference room, and Jason Kong is somewhere else, and so we are all together, and wearing our mask and all that sort of thing. Well, actually we, we've taken our mask off for of the program. So John, that would um, probably be wise. Yes. John, these are strange times. Uh, you know, we, we o- almost open every program or almost every interview by saying, you know, we've never seen times like this. And that sort of goes without saying, but uh, these are really strange times and seem to get a little stranger as we go down the way. Um, you know, the economic impact on North Carolina is a, is a topic we could spend a long time talking about. Reopening the economy is another. The stimulus proposals, the effect on the uh, the, uh, the election and how that may go, it's just all sorts of things to talk about. But I guess the first thing to sort of talk about, because this is on everyone's mind today, is uh, sort of the, the combination of the economic impact on North Carolina and the reopening of the economy. So. Uh, Give us your view of where we are and and what's going on.
2: Well, North Carolina is in the process of reopening its economy, just as most states and most countries are. Uh, But the different states and countries are on different timelines. And as of the time we're talking, Don, I believe North Carolina now has the most restricted economy in the Southeast. Uh, Even Virginia which had initially reacted with a very lengthy shutdown order that was supposed to last until June, has actually backed off of that. The governor of Virginia has instituted a new phase in that uh, beginning this weekend uh, will allow restaurants in Virginia to be open, at least for outside dining, something that is not yet evident in North Carolina. So all of these communities, all of these states are to varying degrees reopening for at least two different reasons that they're, supposedly related, but I think they're different. One of them is a reading of the evidence that in most parts of America, either the curve has been reached, the the peak of the curve has already been reached, and we're going down the other side of the curve as far as infections and deaths are concerned. So, So some of it is based on the actual pattern of the epidemic in a particular place like North Carolina. And the other one is that people are sick and tired of being locked down. Uh, I frankly think the latter one is probably the stronger effect. Uh, going into a lockdown scenario in March, I and others argued, might be a good reason to do this, but people need to understand it can only last a few weeks because we simply can't function as a society and as an economy for months in lockdown. That, that is not a plan. And uh, I think that there were some some pushback to that when I said that and others said that, but I think it's been demonstrated by events that regardless of what people tell pollsters and they don't often tell them truth, (laughs) in reality, people's patience with uh, sitting at home, not working, sometimes not working and also not getting benefits, that, that, that wears thin very quickly. So I think that North Carolina is actually dragging its feet compared to its neighbors for reasons that are um, not unknown to me. I understand why people are cautious and concerned about the virus. It is a killer, but based on the evidence, based on the costs and benefits of keeping the lockdown in place, I think North Carolina is simply moving too slowly and the other states are, are more appropriately trying to get things back to at least some semblance of normalcy. And that includes restaurants, it includes personal care services. Uh, You can get a barber cut or do a hair salon visit now in a lots of states, but not in North Carolina. And that's coming. I think it's coming because uh, it it will be impossible for North Carolina to sustain uh, being the only, only place in the neighborhood where business is shut down so much.
1: John, you know one of the things that kind of uh, I think is a a reason for reopening to some degree is the fact that most of the people who are not observing social distancing and not wearing masks and not uh, following the other suggested protocols uh, are not going to do it whether we're open or closed and and uh, uh, that kind of bothers me that people are uh, not really helping their own cause uh, by observing the recommendations. Uh, and you know, one of the things that I've wondered about is why as a part of the opening of the retail stores, for example, you don't make it a requirement that the retail store says, okay, you can't come in if you're not wearing a mask, uh, of Costco, for example, that's a rule. And, uh, um, you know, th- that's just one more thing uh, that, uh, would cut down on some of the uh, exposure.
2: Well, <clears throat> um, uh, of course, businesses should do, in my opinion, on their own property with their own customers exactly what they want to do. If they want to say you have to wear masks or you have to come in two at a time, I, in my view, that's up to the business to figure out. And I think just as a as a matter of, of politeness and general cordiality, I think people should wear masks unless they can. There are some people where wearing a mask is difficult, sure. asthmatics. Uh, my wife, for example, has very cannot wear a mask for very long without having real problems, breathing problems. So there are exceptions to the rule. But I, I must say, Don, I, I, I don't think the evidence is really all that strong that masks make a huge difference. But I don't think that matters because enough people believe that it matters. Yeah. I, I just think it's kind of obnoxious not to slip a mask on if you can, uh, just so that other people feel more comfortable. And yes, it might reduce the transmission of the virus somewhat. Probably not a great deal. Well because uh, the virus can go through a cloth mask yeah. and you know, I mean, there's some reasons why the effect is modest, but it's probably not zero. And after all, why not be polite?
1: Exactly. And and uh, you know if it cuts down ten percent, that's ten percent more. I mean you know ten percent
2: we'll take it. Because exact, the cost is very low. Yeah. Now there are other there we we of course have dealt with lockdowns and restrictions where the costs are way higher. Yeah and the benefits are modest or unclear. Those regulations need to go, but uh, encouraging people to wear masks if they can and to to distance themselves. In my view, that is if you believe that we should return to normalcy and recover our freedoms quickly, then I believe that masks and social distancing are your friends because they reassure people that even if the government is not gonna be separating us, and and suppressing our economy that we are still going to act in a reasonable uh safe fashion i think it's i I think that i think you're absolutely right that it hurts your cause if you believe in phasing out as quickly as possible the shutdowns i think it hurts your cause if you refuse to follow these basic precautions
1: another thing we hear a lot about especially on the uh, cable news channels is is sort of the the question of who's in charge here i mean uh, is the federal government the, the uh, ring leader, or are the individual states going their own way? Well, it's sort of a combination of both, but it seems like to me there's an awful lot of finger-pointing where the, the uh, feds are pointing to the states saying, you know, you're not doing your part, and the, the states are saying, well, yeah, but we're not getting much help from you. So what's your take on that?
2: My take on that is that the state governments and local governments are inevitably, by definition, the main actors. When it comes to things like setting up quarantines and enacting rules about business operations, that's not a federal role. The federal government shouldn't be involved in that at all. The president can't close down the economy or open up the economy. That's a, that's a police power question that is vested in state governments and local governments. And I think practically speaking, that's what's happened. There are states that never did a statewide uh, shutdown order. There are states that varied rather dramatically in how their, theirs were done, when they were done, how quickly they're coming off. I think that's better. I think it's better for different communities to have different kinds of responses. In fact, I think North Carolina should have allowed local communities to go their own def- different ways because the infection rates, the death rates, the, the, the consequences of the public health emergency itself have not been equally distributed across North Carolina. There have been places where uh, the viral infection and the serious cases coming from that have been worrisome, like in Mecklenburg County. And there have been lots of places where there's virtually nothing. And I think that we should have uh, differentiated the the restaurant restrictions and the stay-at-home order, according to region, at least, if not county. I know that the governor decided not to do that. I guess he thought Everybody would get in their cars and drive from Charlotte to Morganton to eat at the McDonald's or something. I I don't know. But I I think that that would have been wiser. There are states like Florida where that was more the norm. And and I also think, by the way, Don, you mentioned the uh, feds blaming the states and states blaming the feds. This is, of course, this is a kind of a no win scenario where no matter what decision you made, it's going to be unpopular with somebody. It's going to have real costs. So what you'd like to do is take credit for the decisions that turn out to look like they were good, and then to blame somebody else for the decisions that turned out to be bad. Um, objectively, in my view, the worst state government response in the country, without any question, is, is New York's. It was disastrous, they actually forced nursing homes to take infected patients. They, they compelled them to do so, as did New Jersey, um, and and made a number of other horrible, colossal errors. They have the highest death rates in the country. And yet, oddly, some think that Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York is a great hero who's managed this crisis well. And for example, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has done a horrible job. Based on the numbers, the actual objective outcomes, Florida was way better managed than New York during this crisis, and I think that illustrates that different communities are going to have different tests, and leaders are going to pass or fail those tests, and that's what it should be like in a decentralized federal republic like ours.
1: Our guest is John Hood. He's the president of the John William Pope Foundation, is a frequent guest on our program, as well as a frequent guest on Tom Campbell's television program, North Carolina Spin, And uh, we will be back with more. And when we come back, uh, John, we want to talk about the possible effects. And now it's kind of early to be talking about this because we don't know exactly where we're going to be in September or October on the elections. And we'll do that when we return with more on Carolina Newsmakers.
0: One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Pre-Diabetes Awareness Partners. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change
1: our lives, but he was there beside me.
0: When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're
1: back with John Hood, the president of the John William Pope Foundation, here on Carolina, newspaper, uh, <laughs> Carolina Newsmakers. Uh, and as I said when we opened the program, we we're doing this program uh with uh, social distancing in mind and John is in his office and I am in mine and I'm looking at him in the computer screen. I love zoom by the way. I, this is, this is one of the things I've learned, uh, that uh, is going to be very useful after all of this is over because, uh,
2: yes, it could be. I think it's, I think this zoom capability that you have is going to be uh, part of the esoterica of, of Don's, uh, Curtis uh, I think this is going to be part of your legend that you have become a zoom part of my,
1: what was that first word
2: esoteric okay. basically secret knowledge only some people know well actually i have just told all our listeners so never mind it's not a secret anymore
1: see John likes to impress I mean you know well, John's, written, love- John's written a lot of books and usually when he, especially now not all of his books are this way but some of his books which uh, are a little bit more scholarly uh, I usually have to have a dictionary side by side to, to make it through because my vocabulary is uh, is about one half of his, maybe less. Uh, well, we were going to talk about the possible effect on the elections and of course, you know, who knows where we're going to be in September or October. But generally speaking, um, it this uh, whole situation is going to have an impact on the election. So what's your take right now and what are some of the Possible scenarios and twists and turns that could change this.
2: Well, uh, if the election was
1: federal uh, with the presidential race,
2: sure. If the election were this summer or next week or something, I think in general incumbents would do well because people rally around their leaders during a time of emergency. Virtually every governor in the country uh, has seen significant improvements in their uh, public opinion. There's one exception, which I'm going to tie this back to President Trump in a second. The one exception I've seen is the governor of Georgia, a Republican uh, who uh, was one of the early states to announce reopening the economy, but others did too. And they still have popularity, but his is low. This is because he's the one governor, Republican governor, that Donald Trump actually singled out and criticized for opening too quickly or in, in, too broadly. In other words, the Democrats are already predisposed to to not be crazy about the Republican governor in Georgia. And some people who follow Trump's lead then said, well, if Trump disagrees with the guy, then I guess I shouldn't support him either. But that illustrates how much our politics is nationalized uh, to the point that a person who lives in Georgia might take his or her cue on what they think about their governor from the president whether the president says something. I think that Donald Trump still has a, a, a great a, a risk of not winning re-election. This has been true his entire presidency because he started out relatively unpopular for an incumbent, or excuse me, for a president, uh, and quickly frittered away whatever goodwill he had with swing voters. Uh, so he, he starts out with a challenge. He started out in 2017 with a challenge, and he's still got it, that more people than not tend to disapprove of what, he, what, what he's doing. On the other hand, he's running against Joe Biden, just like in 2016, he was running against Hillary Clinton. On the numbers Donald Trump seemed unelectable, I didn't think he was going to win, but the voters ruled that he's bad and Hillary Clinton's worse. And so they voted accordingly, or at least enough of them in enough states did, to turn the outcome. It is possible, again, that Donald Trump could be not very popular, polarizing figure, um, and yet, somehow, eke out a victory because people sour on, or for some other reason, uh, pick him over Joe Biden. Biden is a, is had a long career. He's got some strengths. He's got some obvious weaknesses. If you've seen him or listened to him recently, you can see that the man is simply not at the top of his game. Uh, if if an if elected, Joe Biden would be inaugurated as a president who was was older than Ronald Reagan was when he left office. Uh, and back then, people thought Ronald Reagan was a, a fairly old president. So Biden has some real challenges as well. Of course, uh, I think that of course the virus Donald is, is the main threat. No, that they, they are, but comparatively, no. Donald Trump is, is the spring chicken, or at least no. the, the summer chicken, or something. Um, uh, the the, the COVID 19 response is the primary issue, and I think the economic consequences of it will be the primary issue in the fall. I think it is premature to know exactly how that will play in the presidential race, or in like governors' races and legislative races, uh, because we don't know what we will know in October. Which is, was there a second wave? Uh, If there wasn't a second wave, uh, and places like North Carolina tended to be more restricted, did our economy suffer more as a result? Was that the responsibility of the governor? Is it responsibility of the president? Um, These are questions that we know are critical to how voters will cast their ballots in, in October and November. We just don't know the answers to them yet. Uh, you said earlier that the economy, the, the economic effects are unprecedented. I absolutely agree. We've, of course, lived through a number of recessions. The Great Recession was painful. The recession of the early 80s was painful. The stagflation of the 70s was was painful. But this is a different animal entirely. The Great Depression was caused by a series of policy mistakes, primarily, and trade disputes. And the Great Recession was caused by a bubble in the housing market and some other things. This is the Great Suppression. That's what this is. The government actually actively suppressing economic production, telling companies don't produce goods and services for weeks, months, at a time. I'm sorry we just never experienced something like that before. That's a different kind of thing. And it could be that that kind of government suppression of the economy, while very painful, doesn't last that long. And once the, the, the foot goes off the brake, the car is going to lurch forward and will be a lot better off in the fall. I don't tend to think that's what's happening. I think what it's more likely is that we're going to have a very challenging recovery from a sharp recession depression. The unemployment rate in North Carolina is almost certainly right now 20% if you include uh, people who are who are working part-time but would rather be working full-time, I think that the number of underemployed plus un- unemployed North Carolinians is probably 25% or higher. That is Great Depression territory. That's not anything like we've seen in, uh, you know, our lifetimes for the most part.
1: You know, I, I, uh... I have not looked at the various segments of the economy to see where most of the I mean we obviously know that restaurant unemployment is very high in the hotel industry yes. and that sort of thing. But yes. you know there are so many parts of the economy that seem to be not missing a beat. For example, the construction business, uh, at least in the uh, triangle area is moving right along. Houses are still under construction. Uh, major uh, uh, business projects are seem to be moving right along. I'm, I'm having trouble understanding where the 25% is coming from.
2: Yeah. Well, the construction trade's about to crash though, because a lot of companies are now saying we can't, because we're worried about the next six months, we're going to put off the construction projects we have planned. I'll give you an example of Duke University in Durham, a, a major employer, a major part of the triangle area's entire economy has just frozen all construction spending of any kind for the foreseeable future. They have, forced uh, professors to take pay cuts, not just to not get pay increases. Um, the the hospital systems are, are imposing significant new cost savings because they're getting destroyed by basically being vacant for, for weeks and months. Uh, so some of what is coming hasn't hit hit us yet, but the unemployment and underemployment is disproportionately, as you mentioned, restaurant workers, hospitality, leisure, think about everybody that's involved in the tourism industry, the uh, personal care services, whether it's nail salons, hair salons, massage therapists, barbers, um, uh, various parts of the healthcare economy where people are not going and getting services. Sometimes they could have during the shutdown, but they didn't because they were worried about the virus. Um, So some of these industries haven't been hit yet. So even as we reopen and some businesses start to rehire restaurant workers, and retail people. Uh, Other industries are going to suffer because these costs uh, that that businesses and and nonprofits and governments have taken are not going to easily be overcome. I'll give you the example of the state of North Carolina. It's another big actor in the state economy. It also is involved in construction trades. They are out of money. They, They can't do all the transportation projects they were planning. They don't have any money for that. So the people who were going to build those roads and resurface those roads are going to be out of work. Um, I just looked at the numbers today. Right now, the legislative staff is estimating, the governor's staff together are estimating that we will have a $1 billion deficit in the current fiscal year through June. We will have a multi-billion dollar deficit in the fiscal year that starts in July. Uh, Some of that will be papered over by federal aid, Some of it we can pay for with uh, the rainy day fund and other savings. But it also means there will be cuts. There will be cuts in state services or state employment to some extent, maybe not a great extent in North Carolina because we were better prepared fiscally for an emergency, but there's still going to be contractions. So as some things come back online, other things I fear are going to go offline. And so we may see months and months of extended unemployment. And in fact, most of the forecasters I'm looking at think that the unemployment rate will not fall back into the single digits until well into 2021.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because in every case where there are losers, there are also some significant winners, uh, and uh, they will, uh, you know, they are doing goods and services or providing services that that uh, take advantage of a situation like this. I don't mean in a negative way. I mean honestly, take advantage of right the situation. And uh, sure. One of the interesting ones is, and we only have about 30 seconds for an answer on this, but tourism in North Carolina, uh, there's a question about whether or not, uh, uh, of course, the out-of-state tourism will probably go down, but will a lot of people uh, uh, move their uh, vacations to within this state, and will that uh, yes. off, not, offset?
2: Well, it will offset it a little bit, but we're a net destination. So just as North Carolinians decide not to go to Florida or Chicago or something, and they stay home and do a, a, a closer home vacation, go to the beach. But people from Illinois and Florida that would have come to North Carolina, and yes, some people come from Florida and North Carolina, they're not going to do that as much. So I think it's a net loss, even though it's not as big uh, if you only look at the out-of-staters. I guest
1: is John Hood. He's the president of the John William Pope Foundation, and we'll be back with more on Carolina Makers right after this.
0: Hey, Dad.
1: A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ed Council.
2: Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Is this tree good for climbing? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady and the Ad Council.
0: Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. And, of course, uh, our guest, as we said before, is John Hood, who's been with us a number of times. And guess what? Our topic is the current Situation that we find ourselves in with the coronavirus and COVID 19 and all the ramifications of what's happening, both politically, economically, and so forth. John, what are you hearing? Uh, You know, there's a lot of people working on uh, medical advances, and uh, I think the general consensus is that we're going to have better therapeutic options on this sooner than we're going to have a vaccine. Uh, right. but that's, that's one of the things that could change an awful lot. If we suddenly find that we have much better, um, medical treatments for this. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is the recovery rate, uh, with, uh, you know, if you subtract, assuming that these, th- this data is correct, the number of people that have the disease and the number of people dying, the, the other number has to be recovery. And that still seems to be relatively high.
2: Well, it's even higher than it looks because we we have vastly understated how many people have been infected with the coronavirus. I don't think this is no great conspiracy or anything. It's just we we haven't been testing people who are asymptomatic or get a sniffle and that's all that happens. So it it is a reasonable guess based upon the evidence that we have that North Carolina probably has 200,000 infected people, maybe more. It's nothing like the little, the small, much more, 15,000, 18,000. That's not even close to where it is, 10 or 15 times what we think. Now, on the one hand, you might say, gosh, that's horrible news. That means the virus has spread so much further than we thought. Well, yes, that's true. It's a much bigger problem if you thought it was con- very small. It's not small. On the other hand, it means the vast majority of people either get no disease of any consequence at all from infection of the virus or they recover without very much trouble. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the loss of life because the loss of life is serious. And it depends on the, the jurisdiction. In New York, the, the fatality rate for people who got infected is higher for whatever reason. It could be because the hospitals were overwhelmed or, or something. But in North Carolina, it is likely that we're looking at a fatality rate, an infection fatality rate, people who, are, uh, who have died, for complications of COVID-19, divided by the number of people infected, is probably a quarter of one percent or a third of one percent or something like that. Now, if you get to a really large denominator of a fraction, then the numerator could still be big. No. So we, of course, that doesn't. We want everybody in North Carolina to get infected, because even one third of one percent of North Carolinians is a lot of people. And I'm just saying the. The, 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 the original fear was that this had a fatality rate that was just astronomical, that it was five or eight or 10 percent or something like that. It's not anything like that. And there was also a fear that would overwhelm our hospitals. The number of people who need hospitalization from COVID-19 apparently is quite a bit smaller than, we, than, than was originally thought. I don't blame anybody for sort of erring on the side of caution, for going with the information you have in February or March. but now that we know more about the, the situation, not a lot, but more about the situation, more about the fact that the, the fatality risk is heavily weighted towards people who are elderly, infirm, and, and people have comorbidities, comorbidities like obesity. Uh, this doesn't mean that, great, well, then all those people, we don't care about them and they're gonna die. That's not the point. The point is if you know that the risk is not equally distributed, then you can start thinking more rationally about how to mitigate those risks. For example, we should absolutely be planning to reopen our schools. Uh, It would be foolish not to reopen the schools. Uh, People are gonna demand it, it's gonna happen in my view, including the universities and colleges. And that doesn't mean there aren't anybody on campuses who are at risk or people who are at home who might be infected if someone comes home with the virus, but it does mean That with reasonable precautions and restrictions and focusing our testing and tracing resources on institutions like nursing homes, rest homes, assisted care facilities, hospitals, uh, prisons, jails, those are the places to spend our scarce resources so that we can uh, basically get the best uh, benefit for the dollar expended.
1: John, in the last week, there's been some news uh, that I I don't think received a great deal of coverage, or as much as maybe it should, about the uh, progress that's being made, uh, I think it's by Oxford University, I think it's Oxford, um, on developing a a vaccine, and they they seem to think they may have something that uh, will be available as early as, as September. What do you hear about things like that?
2: Uh, That would be a wonderful event, and I think we should not be counting on it. I think every time someone says, we have a cure, we have a vaccine, things are looking good, we say, good, okay, you keep working on it. Because it's unlikely, it's unlikely, and we shouldn't be betting on unlikely events. uh, Vaccines usually take longer than that, and we're dealing with this kind of disease. Vaccines are usually not all that effective, at least at first. Now this may be completely different and that would be fantastic. But I think that our public officials, our leaders and all of us as North Carolinians, we should be assuming that we're gonna be dealing with this virus for months and months, months without a vaccine and without fantastically successful cures, some better therapies and better as we go on and better knowledge. I think we need to figure out how to move ahead without those things so that if and when those things happen, it's a wonderful surprise rather than something that we're counting on, and then it doesn't deliver. I think that would be more dangerous.
1: Well, obviously, one of the things that everyone is missing are the mess uh, audiences that are usually in attendance at Major League Baseball, stock car races, golf tournaments, and so forth. Uh, so if we are moving back to opening the colleges, what's your take on whether or not the athletic events uh, – college football, for example, uh, should be played?
2: Well, uh, I am not the best person to ask because, as people will know, my bias would be to not worry very much about college athletics because it's about 20th on my list of what I care about on colleges and university campuses. Uh, But, of course, it's a big part of people's experience going to college, working in a college, being a fan or an alumnus, alumni of a college, so I understand it. I think it is. I think group gatherings of that size really are among the last things that are going to come back. Um, people need to understand that. They need to be resigned to the fact that maybe games played without very much of, a, of an audience in stands because they've been played primarily for television. They should accept that. It's just a reality that you're going to have seat, empty, lots of empty seats, not because people don't want to go, but because they're not allowed to come in. Yeah. Uh, that would be better than nothing, though, and yeah. I do think we should yeah. proceed along those lines.
1: Well, that's that's one of the advantages of television. It's uh, and Of course, uh, the television revenue alone is uh, is a significant amount uh, as far as funding. Yes, and TV it.
2: stations, as you may know, Don, are, are hitting it, too, because uh, you know, advertisers are starting to pull out of yeah. the purchases they have made for network TV and cable TV because – they're just, it's not as if, of course, lots of people are watching television way more than they used to, but there isn't new content being made. And so the concern on the part of advertisers is that they can't advertise for shows that aren't being made and aren't going to show up in the fall. And so they're trying to yank that back. So sports revenue would be a godsend for everybody who relies on revenue, whether in the broadcasting business or in the concessions and restaurant business, bars and restaurants, as they open. I mean, if you don't have a lot of games on the screen, then people may not want to go out and have a burger. Um, So all of these things are connected. And I truly believe it is not a question of if. It's simply a question of how quickly we restore large swaths of our economy uh, to something like, uh, wouldn't be normal activity, but significant enough activity for people to to have a living, and for goods and services to be produced. The economy is not about money. It's about goods and services. You can pass money around as long, you can borrow more money and spend more money and borrow more money and spend more money. If goods and services are not being produced, then we are getting poorer. So we have to allow businesses to create and sell goods and services. That is what economic growth means. It's not about redistributing income back and forth.
1: John, do you think, uh, particularly New York where uh, as you said earlier the cases and the numbers are unbelievable um, do you think there will be uh, an exodus of a number a large number of people from new york willing to move to other places and uh, i've heard several economists say that they think north carolina might be the beneficiary of of uh, some of the results of the uh, Uh, of the whole situation, and that would be one of them, that our population may swell. What do you think?
2: I agree with them, and I think there are, again, I'll just give you three quick reasons why I think that's right. One of them is you live in a densely packed place like New York or Chicago or Detroit even in the north. uh, People may just want to be in their cars rather than on public transportation. That may be one reason why people want to move to a place like North Carolina, which is a more car car-oriented uh, commuting pattern, more car-oriented economy. The second reason is that it's warmer. I think people have already been moving to the, to the South and West because they like on average warmer weather. Now we know it's likely that there's at least a component of, of COVID-19 infection that's related to temperature. So people may wanna be in a warmer place where they think, you know, Florida, there's gotta be some reasons why Florida and New York, even though Florida has more people than New York, um, or about the same, well, it's more actually. Uh, why did Florida have so many fewer cases? I mean, Florida is also connected to the international economy, lots of international travel. Well, may, it might be simply climate. And so North Carolina is a warmer place and might become more attractive for that reason. And the third reason is uh, on average, uh, states with, uh, with what we might call the red states or st- states with not just more spread out commuting patterns, but more of a tradition of, of smaller government have tended to do better uh, during the crisis than the, some of these Northeastern states. Now, I don't think that's a cause of relationship. I don't think there's any reason why people would necessarily, like, I should leave New York and move to South Carolina because the politicians in South Carolina are smarter or something. I don't know that that's true, but I think some people will do it. So if you think all three of those things connect Yes, there'll be a continued influx. It's already been an influx of people from the north to the south. I think this will accentuate the trend.
1: Well, that's that's sort of the view that I share, and I I think we will continue to see that North Carolina is a very popular destination, and especially from people in the uh, colder and more northern climates. Our guest is John Hood, and we'll be back with another segment, our final segment of Carolina Newsmakers, right after we take time out for these messages.
0: Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. I came out in the 11th grade. Nobody was embracing you. The kids were cruel. It was very difficult to be gay. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. The hard part was determining that I was gonna do it, but I definitely didn't do it alone. At age 30, with the help of her mentor, Carissa finished her high school diploma. I have a mentor, Maria. She convinced me to continue my education and to finish what I started to get my diploma. Just never judges. She's a true role model. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. And you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen... Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on our final segment of Carolina
1: Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest, and we've been talking about, guess what, the uh, current situation that we're in with COVID-19 and the coronavirus. Uh, well, I'm having trouble saying. Is that a part of the disease? Uh but uh, the, the current situation we're in, and we've talked about the economic impact of North Carolina, the re- reopening and so forth. Um, we've talked about uh, uh, the effect on the elections. And if you miss those segments, you can go back to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear a repeat of that broadcast. Or if you're listening to one of the stations that carries only the half-hour version of this program, you can pick up the two segments that you missed by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. John, uh, much is being said about how important it is for uh, federal aid to come in and support uh, the economy. Uh, of course, at the same time, we're piling on national debt. So where is the balance in that? Because you know, sooner or later, this will have to be paid back.
2: What That's right. Think? This is not a bottomless pit. Yep. Um, and so I, here's what I think. I, I wish that states uh, had saved more money than they did. Uh, even North Carolina wish we had somewhat more savings than we do. But when you have a, an event like this that is really unprecedented, it's completely understandable not to have money sitting around to address <laughs> all the needs and that you would have to borrow. I do not think states should be in the business of borrowing for operating expenses. So in this case, I can understand uh, the argument for federal aid. And we've already had a, 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 about four billion dollars sent down to state and local governments in North Carolina. Washington, of course that's really just everybody's money borrowed, Um, and I think we'll probably see more. My major concern is I don't think we should either require that states and localities spend this federal aid only on new things, because the first and foremost responsibility of governments in North Carolina should be to maintain current services. We're gonna, as I said, have billions of dollars in deficits, And I think that the most important reason to have federal aid is a kind of a shock absorber to keep the COVID-19 crisis from ending up, you know, disemploying people who work for the state, destroying services that people need, whether it's health care or or, uh, public safety or schools. So I think we have to preserve those things in the short run. Uh, If federal aid is going to come, I think it should be used for that. On the other hand, I don't think we should use federal aid as an excuse to let states that, for example, have unfunded liabilities for their pensions or have otherwise made uh, reckless decisions, I don't think they ought to have been bailed out uh, by the federal government. So I think we should require that if states have unfunded pensions, for example, in North Carolina, we have an unfunded retiree health system. Our pension fund is okay, but our retiree health system is not good. I think in those cases, as a condition for receiving federal aid, The states need to state very clearly what their liabilities are and have a quick plan for paying it off. That means cutting spending or raising taxes or whatever it takes to pay off those debts. And if a state takes federal money, blows the money, doesn't use it to pay off its debts, uh, then I believe, or, or doesn't pay off its debts, then I believe that the state should be required to pay the federal government back with punitive interest. So what I'm not interested in is the federal government bailing out all the decisions states made over the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, But I do think it is inevitable there'll be some more federal aid. And I just think it needs to be used in the most efficient way possible, which for states is probably just plugging revenue holes.
1: The Great Depression, of course, uh, was bailed out in a great amount by World War II but also a number of public works programs. And, of course, we have a long list of infrastructure needs in this country. Do you think this is a viable way to keep the economy going, is to pump more money into repairing and rebuilding our infrastructure?
2: I think that we should build the infrastructure that we need, ignoring whether there is a recession or not, because infrastructure spending has a notorious... Uh, effect of coming later than is required for economic stimulus usually takes too long from the time you figure out what you're doing until the time the money is spent you're going to stimulate the economy with with government dollars it's really not an efficient way to do it it's not an argument against investing in infrastructure we should do that because the infrastructure is valuable but I wouldn't go off and say well let's double the amount of construction we were planning to do because that will stimulate the economy it's not usually a good idea I would use those federal dollars, again, to try to sustain what we're doing and sustain, if we can, uh, our road resurfacing and the refurbishment we need of state buildings and school buildings. I mean, these are things we need to be doing, water systems. But don't go out there and start making a list of everything you could possibly do in order to uh, employ lots of people. We, we don't spend money on infrastructure to employ workers. We do it in order to build the the asset as inexpensively as possible if you could do it with 10% fewer workers you should because the taxpayers are ultimately paying for it so I don't think it's a jobs program but I do think infrastructure spending should be maintained if possible during this crisis because we're gonna we have some real needs that need to be addressed and kicking them down kicking the can down the road again is unwise
1: we've got about uh, two and a half minutes left uh, so let's fast forward to September 1. And uh, what's your best guess of where we're going to be uh, as far as our economy, uh, the reopening? And at that point in time, then what effect would that have on the elections? You've got about two and a half minutes.
2: I believe that the economy will be recovering by September. I fear that the recovery rate will be fairly slow and that unemployment rate in particular will be a lagging indicator. We may have surplus we may have way more unemployment than we're used to for uh, many, many months, and that will be horrible. But I do think that things will be recovering and people, some businesses will be getting back into something like their former shape by September. I do believe schools will be opening and colleges and universities will be opening because uh, I really, frankly, don't think there's an alternative. People, parents are not going to pay, for example, college tuition. Uh, for another semester of what a lot of their students experienced uh, from March through April and May. They're just not going to do it. They'll just suspend, they'll just take a gap year or something. And I don't think that's what the universities want. So I think we will reopen, but I think it's going to take a while uh, to recover. And I think the political consequences are unclear because we won't know, we will know better in September and October than we know today. But the North Carolinians think that our government, on, on average, got it better. Than other places, uh, if Georgia, South Carolina are doing better, they're recovering more rapidly. Uh, Tennessee, for example, Florida—if they're—if they're recovering more rapidly than North Carolina, I think that uh, our current incumbents may uh, may face more of a of a headwind than they are expecting right now. Uh, on the other hand, if of all the, if the country in the southeast is all sort of tracking similarly then I think, that people, I think that people will revert to their partisan inclinations and we'll have a more normal election by the time we get to Election Day.
1: Okay, one final question, and again, you've got about 30 seconds on this. So what effect will that have on the presidential election in November? Will President Trump make it or not?
2: Um, right now, I, would, I, I do not personally think he will win, but I think it will be a close election. Uh, And North Carolina will certainly be critical to the Senate control of the U.S. Senate, if not the presidency this year. Uh,
1: And do you think the uh, the House and the Senate will still be uh, split as far as control?
2: Uh, I think the Senate is iffy and the House will remain Democratic. But a lot of this depends on turnout differentials we don't know about yet. And maybe people are not equally distributed in their fear of going out to vote, and maybe that will affect the outcome.
1: John, we certainly appreciate you being with us. John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation. If you missed this broadcast or would like to share it with a friend, you can go online and do so by going to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com, and either hear the entire broadcast or the segments you might have missed or want to share with a friend. The program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he promises to have another interesting guest next week. So the next week, same time, same station. Have a nice week, everybody.